this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at DMOUnion.com or DigMeOutUnion.com, just like our newest patron, Aaron, did. A new $2 patron. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to vote in our polls, leave some comments, all that kind of fun stuff. Also, want to mention, because, uh, you know, we like to um, support our various folks that have, have been a part of the podcast. The Brainiac documentary is going to be out soon, both on DVD and video on demand. You can go to BrainiacFilm.com and, of course, Facebook. There's a page for it. And find out about the February uh, 21st show that will be held at the uh, Market Hotel in Brooklyn, New York with Man or Astro Man, DJ set by Tim Harrington. And that's February 21st, Brainiac Transmissions After Zero, After Zero, DVD, iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, all of your favorite Video on demand sources. And that's our friend Eric Mahoney, who joined us for the Dayton episode. Always happy to publicize some Ohio love when we can. So, Jay, this episode is a poll episode. Our first Indeed. of 2020. Our first conducted in 2020. Last, in January, it was a 2019 poll. Oh, right, right, So right. this this is a, our first 2020 poll. And to to th- throw things into a, into a blender of mayhem, the winner of this poll was not released in, in the 1990s. Can you believe that? Yeah. We let one creep pie. Well, <laughs> you know. One got past the goalie. Here's the thing. We've let a few slide by based on if they released an album in the 90s and and were an existing band in the 90s. We call it the Marvelous Three rule. So, (laughs) you know, like when we talked with Stephen Brodsky of Cave-In, we spent a lot of time on the album Jupiter, which came out in 2000, was not a 90s release. And when we talked to Tim Kasher of cursive and the good life and his solo work again many of the albums we were talking about with him like the ugly organ and and domestica those albums that we're big fans of they came out in the 2000s so we've we've made exceptions here or there but they have to have some sort we're not going to start with a band that didn't exist in the in the 90s that's that's right. that's for dig me out the aughts podcast coming to you soon sure. so i don't know when so for this poll, it was a runaway. I mean, this was a, a just a absolute crushing by Idlewild. Yeah, this might be the the biggest uh, victory we've seen. Fourteen 
votes out of 31. The closest was five votes for Hawksley Workman for him and the girls. And then it was four votes for Fireside's, um, I don't know how to pronounce that, Umami Donor. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you say that. Never said that out loud before. That was the first time. Three votes for Buy a Thread's Last of the Daydreams. Two votes for Chokebore's Motionless. And then a couple of votes, or a couple of uh, bands uh, tied with one vote. Lodger's A Walk in the Park. Michael Patak, Pretty Little Lonely. And Senseless Things, Empire of the Senseless. This was a runaway. Like, this was a Bon Jovi Indeed. runaway right here. <laughs> Indeed. I need to take a drink. My throat's already dry. So, Jay, all right, our suggester for this was Keith Badge. And he even admitted in the comments, he said, I used the Marvelous 3 loophole when I submitted it. <laughs> I.e., an album from 2000 that is eligible if the band has 90s output. Hope is Important came out in 98, but that album is three to four good songs whilst otherwise being undistinguished so 100 Broken Windows seems a better choice as it's a better record also the album was recorded in 1999 so that makes a difference as well because um, Aurelian Moreau said question from a newbie that has not listened to all the episodes the Idlewild album was released in 2000 but recorded in 99 is it eligible due to the recording year yes and no <laughs> <clears throat> We need to have a list of rules, I guess. Yeah. I get. I just... Huh. You know, we can be convinced here and there. Right. We, 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 we can be swayed with the proper amount of... Just uh, don't abuse it, and then we right. won't have to get all technical. We're not going to do an album for 2001. It's too deep. Until we do. Until we do. <laughs> then, but we have to launch a separate, like we did with the 80s. You know, we weren't, we're not going to do an 89 podcast on this one. We'll do it on the 80s podcast. So maybe we need to set another goal of getting to an, an aughts podcast. So you were familiar with this record, right, Jay? Very familiar, yes. You got it when it came out? Yeah, I'm trying to remember how I came to it. Maybe, a, I feel like it might have been a video. Uh and I think it got, you know, a good amount of um, promotion too. Um, so, yeah, I definitely picked it out when it picked it up when it came out, and was a huge fan of it. It wasn't a Virgin Megastore listing booth pickup. <laughs> it might have. It might have been. It was around that time. <laughs> I do remember the video though uh, for one of the uh, maybe Rosability. I don't know. I've seen that at some point on MTV, or maybe even the, maybe even the internet. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like this was in that weird period where music was coming from every direction. Like, it could have been a listening booth at the Virgin Megastore. It could have been, I was reading an Enemy magazine or a Q magazine, one of the British magazines was stocked at the Virgin Megastore. It could have been, Mm -hmm. like, someone that I knew because in 2000, you know, you and I were in a band. We were often exchanging music in terms of what we were listening to, not only with with each other in the band, but with people we were friends with in other bands be like oh have you checked out the new blah 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 album and that was a, a good way then there was also obviously napster and limewire those were around at the time so there's stuff you would just download because you would hear about it or it would just show up <laughs> randomly um yeah. 
it was also like the burgeoning internet was was happening with regards to music blogs and places like uh you know stereo gum was i believe around then and pitchfork pitchfork reviewed this record so it could have been a, and it gave it a very good review actually uh yep. it could have come from a pitchfork review for all i know because yep. i don't remember the first record at all that was not on my radar and i've hardly given it a listen i've given this album and the albums after it a, a lot of listens but not the the first one so and it was interesting we can get into this a little bit later but looking back at this album released in 2000 and other albums, like what an interesting year that was. We can cover that a little bit later. Um, I do want to get some of the comments from our folks over at Patreon. Uh, Brian Trammell went with uh, Fireside. He said it's the album is Fire. But he said, I got to go with Idlewild this time. Interesting. Dan Goodspeed, what were you gonna say? Something that was a well. I, that, I felt like that was a um, common sentiment. There was a lot of fireside love on Facebook, and then even some some comments here, and then ultimately Idlewild just killed it. Yeah, Dan Goodspeed said I booked Hawksley a few times at the venue I used to run in the early two thousands. Not only is he a great musician performer himself, he's also a great producer, producing my favorite albums by Tegan and Sarah and Sarah Sleen. He has some stiff competition in this poll, but I'm rooting for him. Martin Newman said, I haven't heard that Michael Patak album in so long. It was an obscure part of my CD collection when I was writing reviews in the 80s and 90s for Underworld Magazine and getting sent samplers from all over the world. But I remember very clearly his great cover of Paul Kelly's Careless, which I have had in my head ever since. And to this day, is uh, still sometimes I sing in the shower. Uh, David Haverland said that Fireside album is so great. If you like a little heavier rock, that's kind of emo adjacent. Let Let Rasputin Do It is a standout and album closer. Album closer. Oh, I'm so alone is a beautifully sad acoustic song. Uh, Frank Garcia's Hell said, "Love 100 Broken Windows." That album came at a great time when I was starting to embarrassingly slip into the new metal. This album, with a handful of others, pulled me out of that Jinko Gene wasteland. Excellent <laughs> tracks, and they were so great live. Wish they'd return to this sound. And Steve Musinski was amused by the Jinko Gene wasteland comments. <laughs> wow. This, this record did some important work. Yeah. It saved. Save Frank. Frank would be would be uh, headbanging a five-finger death punch right now if it wasn't for, <laughs> for Oitwell. <laughs> so uh we got it wasn't for Rosability. Rosability. It's like I'm gonna go with Gertrude Stein instead right. of uh instead of uh eyes wide open or whatever that arms wide open. That yeah. Uh Gavin, so I tried something new here by listening to all the albums. I heard none. I'd heard none and only knew Idlewild. I enjoyed everything, but I heard I, I enjoyed everything I heard, but Fireside was the standout to me and Honorable mention to senseless things. Interesting. Steve Musinski says, As sad as I am that Fireside didn't pull it out, I'm excited to check out Idlewild. I gave Hope is Important a spin after the albums of 1998 Roundtable. I remember thinking it was decent, but there have been a couple enthusiastic commenters that lead me to believe this particular Idlewild album was a game changer. We shall see. Whitney Buehler, Idlewild. Not that any of my vote. Scott Witt went with senseless things since they were the 
only ones I've heard of, I think. <laughs> so let's do a brief history of the band. History of the band. So they formed in Edinburgh, Scotland. In 1995, they were together, together until 2010. They were, were on hiatus for three years, got back together in 2013, and they're still together putting out records. They had one out last year, actually. Uh, the band is Robbie Woomble on lead vocals, Rod Jones on guitar and backing vocals, Colin Newman Newton on drums, and Andrew Mitchell on bass, Alan Stewart on guitar and Luciano Rossi or Rossi on keyboards. There have been some lineup changes over the years, specifically at the bass position. <laughs> They've had some bass players in and out. And I believe the keyboard player is a newer addition. He joined the band back in when they reformed. But the consistent lineup has been Roddy Woomble, Rod Jones, and Colin Newton. So the so vocals, guitar, vocals, and drums. And there's been one, two, three, four, five different bass players over the years with this band. And they had a they have a fiddle player for touring live, Hannah Fisher. So the first record, which was people have mentioned, is um well, Captain is actually the first release. That's an EP that came out in I think 98. I think they called it an album, but it's really short. Uh, Hope is Important came out in 1998 as well. That was released on Food Records. Now, Food is where you would you'd know that because of Blur. I think that's where they started out. 100 Broken Windows, however, uh, this is when it gets a little interesting with this band. Also released on Food. However, the producers on this record were Bob Weston, who is a famous Chicago producer, and Dave Aringa. Dave Aringa is the guy who has done a lot of Manic Street Preachers records. Oh, okay. They followed up the 2000 album um, with the 2002 record, The Remote Part, that was also produced by Aringa, along with Stephen Street, who was, again, involved with Blur, a longtime producer for Blur, and Guy Massey, that was released on Parlophone, not on Food, however. And that had a number of big singles um, as well. I believe they also, like, around this time, played the Scottish Parliament. <laughs> that was kind of a big deal. Um, and then mm. 2005, they released uh, Warning Slash Promises. That was produced by Tony Hoffer. Dave Ringer produced one track. On that record, 2007's Make Another World. That was produced by Aringa again. 2009, Post Electric Blues, produced by Dave Aringa. And then they had the hiatus, which I believe Roddy Woomble had a solo album during that time. And then they returned in 2015 with Everything Ever Written. That was produced by Rod Jones, the guitar player. And then they released last year, Interview Music, Back with producer Dave Aringa. So, there's your history on that band. In terms of this record, um, 
Weston only ended up recording, I think, three tracks, 7, 9, and 12, which are uh, Listen to What You've Got, Rusty, and the Bronze Medal, and then he mixed one of the tracks, and then um, I guess Oringa did the rest, along with some other engineer that worked on this record. So they worked, part of it was worked in Chicago, and then some of it was worked in, uh, I don't know what the studio is, but, oh, uh, in, actually it was recorded in a number of different studios. So, let's get into this record, Jay. Mm-hmm. Hundred Broken Windows, Idlewild. You know the record, so going back to it, what did you like, or what did you hear going back to it that you enjoyed this time around that maybe you didn't catch the first time around or things that you thought, Oh, this is, this is why I liked this record. If you did. Uh, then and now I find this record just expertly crafted like the, and it's, I think uh, I'm listening to the, um, I guess some sort of special edition that's now available that has a lot of demos on it. Mm-hmm. And early versions of the songs, and it's just remarkable to hear, you know, fairly simple songs and concept, but the way that they're put together on the record, between kind of the dynamic techniques within the engineering, but then also the instrumentation, the tones they're using, the way that they're able to use guitar and, and drums as in these really interesting ways, where they can be very powerful, but also very like you know, a little bit intricate and layered. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, you know, I I picked up on that a lot. I think this was, you know, we were writing a lot of music at the time and this was, you know, right in this, in the spot that I wanted to be as, you know, creating, creating my own music. I think now with a little bit more music in my head and in my ears over the years, I can hear, I think with more clarity what they're doing, which is interesting, um, how they're using the guitar and the piano to create, you know, more elevation and dynamics and really help melodies come together. There's a lot of really cool use of background vocals on here yeah. that I can pick up on now. The drums are deceptively, I don't want to say complex, but they can sound fairly straightforward at a glance. But when you dive in, you know, there's some really cool stuff going on with like triplets and just, just overall dynamics um, drum-wise too that is really cool. Uh, you know, it's a powerful record, but it's also it, it's got some depth and nuance to it sonically, lyrically. So, yeah, I, I just I really I found it at the time and still find it to be really well crafted. Um, and when you listen to the demos and the early versions of a couple of the songs, they're not this, you know, it, it's like a whole other level. Like the 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 kernel of the idea is there. But say like Idea Track is one of the songs um, that they have an early demo of. And the verse is just – it just sounds like a boring indie rock song. And mm-hmm. then there's – they rewrote the verse and just kind of tune the production and the performance a little bit. And all of a sudden it comes to life in this really kind of unique take on you – know, sound, sound-wise, there's nothing on here where you're going to be like, oh, OK, I've never heard a band like this before. So it's kind of familiar ground in that way. But they put a very clear stamp on it that is their own, um, with their own energy, their own personality.
And so you can hear that, you know, from those demos of being fairly, I don't know, unremarkable to what they tuned it into and really put that final layer of craft on. And it, it really sparkles and it becomes something, I think, pretty special. So, yeah, I, 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 I really I dig this record. And uh, um, there's a lot, I think, to learn if you're, you know, kind of in a rock band and like fuzzy sounds, but also like some things that are a little bit heady and a little layered. There's a lot here to pick up on. The sense of urgency on this record is the thing that I liked about it then and the thing that I love about it now. Like when they get into a song, like a little discouraged, like basically the first four songs, yep. there's this sense of like, I'm so excited to play this song. <laughs> yeah. That there's just this propulsion to all these tracks that, uh, not this, there's a couple of slow songs, but all the songs have this sense of like very tight arrangement and everything is we are we are playing this at the edge like if we played it any faster it would it would get, become a blurry mess yeah but they're just at that point where it's like urgent and you're you know Roddy Woomble is able to like craft these really interesting melodies and and lyrical choice make lyrical choices that are they reminded me a little bit of when we reviewed the Promise Ring album and and Davy Bolin would like repeat lines over and over again yeah and sort of it would become like a mantra almost and that's what he does a lot here like there's there's actually not a ton of lyrics to some of the songs he sort of repeats you know back and forth between different parts and he might adjust things here and there but he chooses such interesting phrases that they just like bore into your head after one or two listens yeah and everything becomes like memorable and everything becomes i mean this is a, a less than 40 minute long record made in 19 or in, made made in 1989 released in 2000 that's pretty amazing i mean there's only one song over 4 minutes there's couple songs under three minutes and it doesn't nothing feels like it is at the wrong length for me like everything feels like they nailed they knew when to get out on these songs and say you know we have maxed out the idea for this track let's get out if it's 214 we're getting out if it's 239 we're getting out whatever it was it was really revelation because of how you know, going back to this, I knew I liked the record, and I liked the one after this as well. I like these two records are clearly their their high point, and they don't really. I don't know what happened after this, but they sort of changed their sound. Maybe they were going for like a more commercial sound. I think after this, um, I remember with uh, the lead single on Warning Promises. There's just a, I don't know. They they're just playing. At a certain artistic level, I when I read the um, the Pitchfork review, it said like Idlewild sound like the the kind of guys in high school that would read Shakespeare for fun, and I thought that that was a funny like. There's a literacy to the to the yeah. ideas that they're playing with here, like the fact that Rosability is a you know references Gertrude Stein and a rose is a rose is a rose, and and you know that's just it wasn't something you were hearing at. at yeah. 
at that time from a commercial sort of UK rock band. And it was, it was just really cool to go back and and hear. It's raw, in the same way that like you know I'm thinking of Dave Varinga's production. Like there are elements to the Manics "Everything Must Go" that are raw, in terms of the guitar sound and in terms of the drum sound. But it's so tight that yeah. it's just it's it's such a fun listen because it's over like that, and you're like put it on again. Yeah, no, and I, you mentioned they know how to get out of songs. They also know how to get into songs. Yes. Like when the song starts, you're like, we're in the song. This is the song. I'm not waiting for a minute. I'm not waiting for some interlude. It's like, boom, here's the song. Let's go. You know? Um, yep. And it's not easy to get to uh, for the most part. Um, yeah. There's no, like, um, you know, when they, I'm thinking about a lot of their songs start with either, like, a little drum intro or a little guitar riff. And those things last sometimes like two seconds or or four seconds, and they run through the riff, you know, like really fast, and you know the riff because they, but it, because of this the the energy that they're playing at, like they get through it, and you're in the song within five seconds, and and you're within the chorus in thirty seconds. And it's like wow, this is like this is like punk rock in some respects in the way that they're like getting to the meat of the song so quickly. And even those little riffs that, whether they be drums or guitars that set the song up, those come back again. Like they play a role in setting, like setting a theme or a expectation. You know, whether it be like the drum beat that starts rusty. You know, that very much sets up the very aggressive section of that song, mm-hmm. um, where it's you know kind of bashing like that. Or when some others where the guitar riff might start, it's like this melodic theme that carries you through a verse or comes back in a chorus. Um, it's not just like, I think some records were reviewed where we'll complain because it's riff after riff, you know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, I get this guitar riff and then there's another guitar riff and what the hell did this, what did any of these riffs have to do with anything? Like they don't come back. They have no role in the song. Right. just like a riff. Yes. <laughs> um, that is not the case here. No. I, I I do want to bring back the the comment you made about the the backing vocals. They're so good on this record, in terms of not necessarily like the it's not you know Michael Anthony or anything. It's just that they pick really cool spots to do them. Like in Little Discourage, there's a little counter vocal that's like it's a little bit. I, I th- they they like EQ it so it's a little um, less bassy and it's like buried a little bit. And and then Rose Ability, there's cool. Uh, you know, counter melodies and, and they just, they come up with little interesting things so that there's, 
there's almost no spots in the record where there isn't some kind of melody happening, which is whether it's from a guitar part or a bass line or a keyboard or a vocal. Like there's always something melodic happening, even in really noisy spots. Like Idea Track was a track that I didn't really love when I first got the record. I remember kind of skipping that one a lot because I was like, "What? Are, this is kind of silly." Um, but it's got one. Of, his vocal melody for the chorus is like one of the best on the record. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I it was. I'm glad that they snuck this into the poll because I almost had forgotten how much I really I love this record. Like. It really has stuck with me where, and I, I mean, it, it was crazy because I knew as soon as the song started, I knew the song like all the way through pretty much. Some of the stuff on the back half I might have forgotten a little bit. And I, I think I forgot where, how things were track listed. I thought like Mistake Pageant was a little bit higher up in the, yeah. or listen to what you've got. Yeah. A uh, good comment from Jeremy Amend on uh, the live stream. He mentioned, uh, this is great indie rock with a little REM influence. Uh, yeah, a hint of hum and some keyboards tastefully sprinkled in. I think Mistake Pageant might be like a good example for me of that little bit of that REM flair. that and i would imagine maybe their earlier record has more of that but i don't i, I don't know that i've heard the record before this hope is important yeah i, I couldn't yeah. pick out a song from that record yeah. and i hear that in, in mistake pageant it has sort of a pre-monster or even like even pre uh automatic for the people like yeah. m- more green and and right and that era of REM, like eighties, more eighties REM than the nineties right. REM. Yeah, I and I think you're gonna you know, it was funny because I, I found myself singing along every once in a while. And uh during like Rosability, um I I started singing like Brian Molko from uh from Placebo. And I was like, I don't I I never thought of them as being in the same vocal range, but they're they're really not that far off from each other. Huh. He's yeah, just a little I, more nasally. Yeah. I like that, uh, you know, vocally, I like this record a lot. Um, you know, he manages to have a unique voice, uh, but not to the point where it's... Uh, you can't quite put a finger on, like, who else he sounds like. There's there, Like, you can mention, like, oh, there's he's in this range, or there's times where you could kind of hear this yeah. or that. But for the type of music they're doing, you know, I like that he's found his own sound and i also like that you hear a little bit of the accent you know you don't always hear yep. just in the way he delivers you know some of the stuff that's a little bit more laid back and a little talky like you can actually hear a little bit of the scottish scottish accent which 
I, I enjoy. It kind of brings you back to like, you know, who the band is and really makes it authentic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, another thing I heard comparing some of the demo stuff to what this ended up being, I guess I could kind of hear a little bit more of like an emo kind of influence on the band in terms of like more of the pop oriented emo melodic stuff. Um, let me sleep would be a good example of like, Hmm, you know, like elevating it beyond just like droning indie rock into something that's a little bit more hooky, emotional. Um, yeah. I mean, that's not far off from like Jimmy eat world's, uh, clarity or, or braid frame and canvas. I mean, that song specifically. Yep. Um, any knocks on the album issues? (laughs) Not really. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I went through track by track really looking for something. I, I mean, I, I guess if you get into a commercial conversation for the band, I could see like, like a song like Rusty gets pretty aggressive. And there's other things on here that are very melodic and hooky and pop friendly. But because it's delivered with this very consistent production, in just palette, like there's a set of instruments and tones they use and they stick to that. I think it really holds together so that yeah. the, to me, the, the stuff that's aggressive sounds okay next to the stuff that's more hooky next to the stuff that's more ballad oriented because it's so consistent mm-hmm. um, from just sonically and conceptually. So, I mean, not a whole lot. I mean, I know I tried to find stuff and I was like, well, Rusty's pretty aggressive. I'm like, but I love that ending of that song and his yeah. vocals are, his chorus is really strong on that song. Like, I love that there's an aggressiveness to like that song and listen to what you've got. Like, I, there's such a balance between their young guys making some noise, but they're also able to rein it in and make it so listenable. I think what's cool about this record and why it's relevant for us to review it. Um, it's like you took a, a lot of what I like about the 90s and you packaged it up in a really concise, crafted record. But it still sounds modern. Like, I think mm-hmm. this sounds like a band that could have come out this year, yet heavily influenced by a lot of ideas maybe not the, as much of the cliches, but sort of the better ideas of the 90s, all on one record, you know? I mean, do, do you kind of hear it? Hear well, that? yeah, and, I, and when I mentioned earlier about looking back at 2000, I, I was curious, like, what else came out this year? Because I feel like I had pretty much given up on grunge and Seattle, and a lot of the stuff that I was into in the 90s, I had completely put that aside like Soundgarden was broken up Allison Chains were broken up Stone Temple Pilots had broken up and reformed and I really didn't like what they did with the number four record and Pearl Jam put out Binaural which I don't like that record at all and I've even tried to go back and listen to it with fresh ears and I'm like nah this doesn't this just doesn't work for me and I had you know I, I got this record you two had that okay all that you can leave behind that had beautiful day but it felt like very trite so I was yeah. like, okay, well, what else came out this year that I was interested in? Well, this is the year of Queens of the Stone Age rated R. So this mm. is like the this is the year I'm introduced to that band. I'm like, okay. 
this is the year of Coldplay Parachutes. And I remember liking that record because I was like, this is different. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is an interesting record. It doesn't, it's not a complete cop of the art of the Radiohead sound in, in the way that some other bands were doing. There's like a, yeah. a nice acoustic aspect to this. And then, in, and, and speaking of Radiohead, this is the year of Kid A, which I, I love that record. This is Relationship of Command by At the Drive In. This is Elliot Smith's Figure Eight, Primal Streams Exterminator, um, White Pony by the by the Deftones. So and, and the Hives, Veni Vidi, Vidi Vicious. So and you and I were, and and some people we knew were getting into those like Swedish bands around that time of of the sure. uh, action rock. So like yep. my tastes were were changing a lot in in like ninety nine two thousand, and this was like right where it was happening because i was ignoring pearl jam and green day and and oasis and even though i went to see oasis on this tour uh, it was to see travis opening for them more so than to mm-hmm. see oasis so it was like i felt really good about where i was musically looking back at 2000 because like oh there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening um with regards to you know what I'm finding through friends, what I'm seeing live coming through town. Um, it was all very different, but by the end, and then I looked at like 2009 at the end of the decade, and I was like, I was totally out of it. Like I, I wasn't listening to any of the stuff that was like popular from it yeah. in the, in the respect of like, you know, rock and indie rock and stuff like that. Like I had pretty much bailed because a lot of the bands at the beginning of the decade that I liked like Idlewild, like Block Party, Interpol, those they they made second records and I just I lost interest after that with a lot of those bands. Me too. Yeah, this was kind of the last period for me as well the following yeah, or at least finding relevant like um let's just say mainstream alternative media, rock media, like at this point, everything I think after this became so fractured that there's a lot of great music that's come out since then, but it's not sort of, it's not being covered by like, this is, I think you mentioned it like stereo gum and pitchfork and all that was still very much like, this was the sound that all those publications and sites were, these were all the bands they were talking about and now it's not the case. I think it's just all fractured and, and whatnot. But yeah, I think what's, I very much, I think thought of this band is fitting in with like, say a Travis who was big at the time or even a, the early Coldplay, but they had like this aggressive tilt to them that those bands didn't have. Um, yep. That I thought made them stand out um, in a, in a really unique way, even though I think, from a song standpoint, like if you play these on acoustics, like across the bands, they might sound very similar, but there was something about the way they presented it with this really chunky fuzzed out guitar and just heavy drum sound that, uh, took them to another level. Yeah. I forgot to mention the other one that was this year was, uh, death cab for cuties. We have the facts and we're voting. Yes. Which I think that was a, that was a big record because, It was like, it was indie rock in the way that we were listening to indie rock. But it, because it was, he, you know, that, that was when the band was always slow <laughs> in all their songs, pretty much. And they maybe would have like one or two up-tempo tracks. But it was very 
I don't want to say it was slow core, but I mean, a lot of that stuff is pretty, pretty slow, but really melodic. And, and Ben Gibbard had really on that record figured out like some really interesting pop melody to put on top of those songs and would have and, and, and had no idea where that band was going to go, obviously, at that point. But it just it seemed like we were all interested in like turning the page on, on a lot of the 90s stuff. And just like, all right, what yep. are the new bands? Like, new decade, new bands. And a lot of the stuff that I was interested in just did not carry over into the... I, there, are, Like, Wilco was one that may happen to, like, cross over from the 90s to the 2000s for me. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones that actually made that transition. Yeah. Radiohead, but then Radiohead would lose me after Kid A. I, I liked Amnesiac, but I didn't love it. And yeah. then after that, I was I kind of would listen to the stuff, but not really get that invested into it. So, but I liked going back to this because it was such a weird transitional period between, you know, like you said, like there are elements of Hundred Broken Windows with Idlewild that sound like the '90s, but it's a much different take on it. Yep. So. Yeah, to, to me it sounds less, like I said, less cliched. Like it's all the good stuff without the the yarling and the grungy and the – Oh, mean, yeah. It's fuzzy, but it's not – they don't follow any of those sort of things that are tired. I want to call out to the uh, the guitar tones on this record. I really like um, – and the reason I like them is they – even the clean stuff still has this grittiness to it. I don't know what they're using. It kind of sounds like Telecasters maybe, but a song like Quiet Crown is a good example of like, it's this picking part, but it's, it's just got enough like dirt on it that it sounds full. It doesn't sound brittle and kind of like, it's got meat to it, even though it's a fairly, you know, clean ish picking thing. Yep. And a lot of the records like that. And they find these like tones that just layer really well, where you get the fullness of the whole guitar but then they'll drop like a really overdriven thing on top. And it never – a lot of times when you do that, I'm thinking of like – let's say it's like Stabbing Westward or something where you like try to layer guitars like that. It gets to the point where it's just like this mass, mass of distortion and you can't quite make things out. But they never – it never gets there. Like it gets huge, but you're always able to hear all of the different pieces and parts, which – sometimes the level of fuzz that they're using mm-hmm. um, and the layering they're doing is not easy to do. Um, but again, it's just one of those things to me that really helps this record stand up over time. It, it's not exhausting on the ears, let's say. Like no. if you have this crank, like one, it helps it's not a super long record, but two, you know, sometimes records like this, you're like, by the end, you're like, oh my gosh, okay, I just need to take a break and listen to something quiet for a while. Right. Um, it never yeah. does that for me. I feel like that, Probably has something to do with Dave Aringa producing. Yeah, that he had worked with a number of bands. Obviously, we've mentioned the Manics, but you know that's not the only band he worked with. But having, but knowing how to craft radio-friendly guitar that's got some heft to it. Yeah, you know because that's not something that everybody knows how to do. And and that that was a band that required that weird combination of like vitriol in their guitar and you know nastiness in some respects, yep. but also really catchy 
and radio friendly. So, I, you know, he was absolutely the right choice for that because he brought that out of them. So, um, and just, you know, I was looking at what else he's worked on. You know, he worked with Erasure. He worked with Head Swim. That's a mm. band that we, you know, wrote or uh, did a review of many years ago. Right. Um, worked with uh, a bunch of, you know, UK bands. Also, Kylie Minogue, which I would not oh. have expected that to be in his, uh, you know, Well, there's definitely background. a pop sensibility here, which yep. I think, again, again, going back to the demos, um, you can hear... Like there's some influence going on, whether it be the producer or the band itself, or it all just coming together of how to go to that next level and make things a lot more accessible, but not lose their their sound. Right. I think that's the what is so cool about this. Like I think a, a good comparison is he produced the Masses Against the Classes single for the Max Street Preachers. And if you think about that song, I mean, that is a pop song for them, and it has some of the nastiest guitar stuff that they've done on mm-hmm. that song. And yet it's like a perfect radio UK single. Yep. So, you know, that makes a difference when you're finding who you want to help realize your sound. They actually, they did a really good job of bringing that together. So yep. on the flip side though, this band and 2000 had little to no choice or little to no, uh, options in the United States because there was there was hardly any outlet for I, I'm sure they got played on CD one oh one which is now CD one oh two point five but like commercial radio was playing new metal. They were playing Limp Biscuit and Creed and the New Stone Temple Pilots which sounded like Creed and you know Pearl Jam wasn't on the radio anymore at this point. They're not they're not gonna play nothing as it seems. That was the lead single off that record. It was, yeah, you know, I mean, rock radio was not going to play this at a big, clear channel commercial level. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this record got pushed. Um, I think it had a decent amount of promotion behind it. I just don't think that the time had passed. You know, the radio had was listening to, you know, probably the requests they were getting and the um, momentum they were getting behind. Yep. You know, kind of the, the butt rock stuff, and <laughs> this is probably yep. the the time at which they said, why are we, like, basically we're going to go in that direction, classic rock, and it's been, at least my sense has been, it's been that way since, and, like, everything else has fallen to either obscurity or country or yeah. pop. This was also the era of, like, Buck Cherry, too. Yeah. So that this is not in line. You can't play no. lit up after Rose Ability. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. it's it just doesn't work. So let's do our, our ratings. We're the album better EP decent single. I think you're I think you know. Yeah, I'm gonna word the album. Yeah. Um I'm struggling to find anything about this record I don't like. Now I mean I, I can very well see a lot of people listening to this and thinking, oh, it's fairly generic alternative rock. Okay. But you know, that's kind of our sweet spot. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, for that, um, 
for genre if you're a fan of that genre it it fits really well so yep yeah worthy album i'm i'm there with you i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything about this record in fact i think if anything it it deserves more recognition because it is a pretty amazing balance of aggression and melody and restraint and there's some beautiful lyrics on, on this and great playing and arrangement and every all the tones sound good. So yep. yeah, this is a worthy record for me. Absolutely. Thank you, Keith Badgie, for submitting this to our poll. Even though it was uh, on the verge, we're all right with uh, that caveat making it in. So if you would like to uh, do so as well, you can go to our website digmeoutpodcast.com and if you scroll down or scroll up or depending on what if you're on a mobile or if you're on a a desktop uh, there's an submit an album link you can put that in there what album you want to suggest and then also you can give us some some notes on why you're suggesting it and if you'd like to uh, have your comments read on the air as well as get our cool stickers or even T-shirts or 12-month picks, you can join us at Patreon. That's dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at Apple Podcasts. It's where you listen to podcasts from Apple. <laughs> We're also available at Spotify and Stitcher. And, uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Some